It's Friday, November 3rd, and from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. Wissahickon Creek, just outside Philadelphia, has problems. For starters, a lot of the watershed is covered in impermeable surfaces, meaning there's not enough groundwater infiltration. We still monitor here, and it is dry all the time. But while some parts of the creek don't get enough water, others get way too much. It comes up over down the street and comes down. You can have a couple of feet of water over here. The velocity and energy of the water, you know, coming through that channel can be really dangerous. In communities along the Wissahickon, flash flooding endangers people and destroys property. But the damage doesn't end there. And you'll see high banks here, three or four feet high, where it's been eroded out. A lot of erosion and sedimentation. There's more. All that eroded soil gets washed downstream. And those sediments kill all of the little critters in the creek. They literally suffocate them. Of course, sediment isn't the only thing that ends up in the creek. When the water is high, you never know what might come floating by. I saw a log about 18 inches, 2 feet in diameter. I'm zooming down. It was so fast, it's like someone shot it out of a cannon. Scum, a lot of golf balls. <laughs> Lots yeah. of golf balls because the golf course is up there. Someone once told me that they that a car came floating down, but that might <laughs> be like a watershed myth. But no, it's not actually a myth. It's not. I, no, it's a Volkswagen that was upside down. And even when the creek isn't flooding, runoff can carry chemical pollutants into the water. Road salt, for example. From the salting of the roads, the chloride spiked hugely. Or fertilizer, which has been linked to more than one fish kill. 16-inch fish just floating right there. There were so many. But it's not just what's in the water. It's also what isn't there. Dissolved oxygen, for one. Between wastewater treatment plant discharge and a lack of riparian buffers providing shade, the water is often too warm. It means it can't hold as much oxygen that the fish and animals need, and it promotes algae growth, which is bad. The list goes on. The Wissahickon has many problems, and we could spend the next 30 or 40 minutes talking about them and still only scratch the surface. In fact, that's exactly what we did back in March on episode 28 of Pennsylvania Legacies, which is a tour of the Wissahickon watershed and a look at some of the problems it's dealing with. You can find that episode at peckpa.org slash audio if you want a little more background on today's show, which is part two in our series on the multi-municipal, multi-agency effort to find a comprehensive solution for the Wissahickon's many interrelated problems. Now, step one in that process was convincing more than a dozen municipalities to sign on to an intergovernmental agreement to work together on the issue. That happened late last year, and thus the Wissahickon Clean Water Partnership was born. Step two, which has been going on all this year, an exhaustive scientific study. I'm Laura Turan, and I'm a professor in the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences, Temple University. I spent some time with Dr. Turan back in January in her lab on the Temple campus. So these are dissolved oxygen loggers. Uh, yeah, and I, I need more of these, but they're $1,400 each. Now, before you can find answers for a problem as complex as this one, you need to be sure you're asking the right questions. When the EPA looks at an impaired waterway, they're usually focused on just one question. Does it comply with its allocated TMDL, or total maximum daily load, for a particular pollutant? Dr. Turan's job is to gather the data that will help the partnership develop better criteria, accounting for all the relevant factors and how they affect one another. And to that end, she is pursuing a whole range of questions. Uh, TMDL is related to nutrients. There, w- there is an existing TMDL, which is both nutrients and sediment. So I have turbidity loggers out there, which measures sediment, and I have a couple of nutrient loggers. 
So I move those around, and what they're going to tell me is where is the stream degrading the nutrients naturally, and where is it not? Because if the stream takes care of itself, then we don't have to build things, and we don't have to re redo how the wastewater treatment plants are doing their processing, which is the big worry. That's very, very expensive. So if we can get the stream to process the nutrients themselves and there is absolutely processing going on from what I can see so I want to see why does it happen in some places and not in others are there things we can do to enhance it one of the things that the EPA based their criteria on was low oxygen and I haven't finished looking at all the dissolved oxygen data but it wasn't as low as I thought it would be based on them coming up with this criteria so where were they looking that they were seeing it and I'm not? And what does that say about stream health? So I may be able to show that the stream isn't quite as unhealthy as they think, and I may be able to show some places where the stream is healthy and doing its thing and maybe enhance that over more parts of the stream. So I'm really looking at water chemistry a little bit more than flows, but flows are a component of it for the reason that I said. It's the source term. Well, what else are you looking for in terms of chemistry? You said dissolved oxygen. What yeah, else? so phosphate, nitrate, and then um, turbidity, which um, some people think of as chemistry and some as a physical component. But the sediment is a concern because when sediment gets stirred up, it covers up habitats, and then it essentially keeps oxygen out of some of the habitats. Plus, it's like uh, living in California where your house is subject to landslides. That's what it's like for the aquatic habitat is when you have a lot of sediment moving around. So I'm also trying to find out what types of storms create problems with the sediment and are we having problems, more problems in one place than another, in which case we can focus our resources on those places. What species are affected by this? Are we talking about fish, insects? So it starts with the insects. Um, in fact, they're larvae. And if they aren't healthy, then the fish don't have anything to eat. And so it's, it's a whole food chain. One of the concerns is that if the nutrients are too high, it can be hard for the natural processes to take place. It's sort of like being over-fertilized. And so I've read about this, that right downstream from wastewater treatment plants, sometimes you don't get as much processing. Well, we put our logger about a kilometer downstream from one of the wastewater treatment plants, and we have measurable processing, so that's good. Now, it's better if you're a little bit further away, but it's interesting that we're actually getting processing that close to the wastewater treatment plant. So I want to investigate that a little bit more and think about if there's some things we could do to enhance that, see if it's seasonal. Another thing that we're going to work on next year, um, I mentioned that there's processing going on, but I'm not seeing the same thing in my nitrate data as I'm seeing in my phosphate data. Well, that doesn't make sense. If I'm a living thing, I'm I would tend to use them both at the same time. Like your DNA is made of nitrogen and phosphorus, and it has a certain ratio, and living things have a certain ratio. Well, we're not seeing that ratio. We're not seeing them being used together. We need to understand why. There may be a sediment story there where some of it's get, some phosphate tends to get caught up in sediment a little bit more than nitrate, so I want to explore that. I want to understand why those aren't acting in sync. I think another piece of this, and I don't know that you'll hear this from someone else, is getting a better idea of what the problem really is. I mentioned that I haven't seen the low DO, and I also have seen a lot of turbidity, 
they have a sediment TMDL already, maybe they just aren't implementing the current TMDL properly. Hmm. And if we just did a little better job of some of that, we wouldn't need to um, bring the nutrients down as much. Maybe we need to use a combination of things that we control better. And just because they wrote a TMDL and made some improvements in the sediment doesn't mean that we're where we should be in the sediment. So I would kind of like to explore um, the overall stream health, not focus on just one thing and say, oh, if we fix this, everything will be better all of a sudden. I'm a little concerned that that might not be a good solution. That was my conversation with Dr. Turan back in January 2017. As this phase of the research was just getting underway, I stopped by the lab again earlier this fall to get an update on how the study was progressing. Tell me what the last few months have been like. How have you spent your summer? Yeah, it's been hectic. We had a couple goals this summer. One, um, we and it started in the spring. We wanted to try an, a new deployment of our loggers, and there were two changes that we made. First, we increased the number of dissolved oxygen loggers. Along with the DO loggers, we have turbidity loggers because we feel like the sediment story hasn't been adequately addressed yet either. And I think we have 14 of those. So we have slightly more of the turbidity loggers. And just keeping all of these loggers running and their batteries going and the loggers not clogged, uh, because when the sediment does clog them, they don't read very well, has kept us hopping this summer. So you're just kind of driving from site to site and checking and fixing things as needed? Yes. Yeah. One example. So in addition to those loggers, we have two nutrient loggers, or we had, so this is a story for you. They're very expensive, so we only bought one nitrogen and one phosphate logger. And on June 24th, they predicted a half-inch rain, and instead it rained about an inch and a half, and it wiped out quite a few of our loggers. We lost the phosphate logger, literally. It was attached to um, a couple of batteries, and this storm picked up two car batteries and carried them downstream about 600 feet um, and dumped them in a pool and they were still okay when we pulled them out of the pool. <laughs> I don't know why. But the logger itself, which is the bigger concern, got disconnected from those. It was washed downstream, so we found it probably 600, 800 meters downstream. So we got them all back to the lab, and it worked, but we were missing one part that we needed to put it back out, and we waited two, three weeks for them to ship us this part, and when we got it in and plugged everything in again, it wouldn't, the blogger wouldn't work anymore. So that was very disappointing. They, they're way behind on repairs. We won't get it repaired till next field season. So that's the data logger part of the project. I think it's been fairly successful despite that. We have a lot of oxygen data and see some patterns that aren't quite the same as what we learned from just having two locations. We're, we're, we're much richer. And the turbidity data has been quite revealing as well. Um, the placement of our loggers is telling us something about where the disturbances are. Yeah, what's it telling you? I'm going to hold off on that. Yeah, I've, I've got one site analyzed in a lot of detail and have just glanced at the other two. So I want to I see if the pattern holds for those. But I just want to point out that by monitoring in more detail, we can get rid of some assumptions that we've been making based on so much more limited monitoring. Um, I think we've, we've made some assumptions about the stream that aren't true, and this is good to 
find out find that out yeah. yeah so what are what are some of those assumptions well just the fact that they decided on a nutrient tmdl was assuming that we've taken care of the sediment problem and i don't see i don't think that's going to hold true we still have a lot of sediment disturbance in this stream and we need to tackle that if we're going to have a healthy stream we need to continue to tackle it it's a very difficult problem as well and some of these problems we can't solve quickly it's going to take some time and patience and i think that's probably one of them one of the other things we've done with the sediment is we took the sediment and we treated it mildly but aggressively with some chemicals to see if we could get any nutrients to come off so the question i'm trying to answer with that is are there nutrients stored on the sediment such that if we clean up the stream, they'll slowly keep releasing? And we don't have a handle on that, but it would be a mistake to, to assume that we can solve the problem at the source if there's multiple sources we're not keeping track of. And really limited data set so far, but I'm learning a couple of things. One, I was not able to get any nitrogen off, and that we actually expected it doesn't sorb very easily but it was nice to confirm it so that's kind of interesting i i thought i might see a whole lot right downstream from a wastewater treatment plant and we did sample a couple locations and it wasn't necessarily different from other locations so that's going to be interesting very very limited sampling but to go from not having any idea if this is a problem to having some real numbers is i think it's going to help us move forward so we can make clear decisions what are you learning about erosion there's a couple of things that we're learning. The banks have much more fine sediment than the beds. So I'm guessing that means they're more likely to be a source of erosion. The other thing is that I'm starting to feed this data to the modelers so that they can put it into their model. Right now, they have to make assumptions about erosion that are based on data from elsewhere. And now I could give them grain size data from our stream instead of somebody else's. And so it's going to help make their model more accurate. So what are kind of the, the big unanswered questions? What's keeping you up at night? Oh, I can tell you that. We need to do a little bit more biological monitoring, and I'm not a biologist. I would also like to get some help to better identify what's going on with the algae. So I feel like the biology is a little bit of a gap for me right now, but I'm poised to answer it if I could just keep my loggers in shape so I could go turn my attention to something new. So that's one thing that keeps me up. Um, I think getting all the data organized, I feel like there's some interesting patterns there that I haven't seen yet because organizing the data so that I can look at it. Um, so I'm just drowning in data and I need to um, swim a little harder. So the research continues. Despite some interesting preliminary findings, there are still a few too many unanswered questions to get a really clear picture of what the next stage of the initiative will look like. Still, I wanted to know more about the range of possibilities that could lie ahead. What kind of interventions are we looking ahead to? Yeah, so that's very speculative at this point. Um, so I'm reluctant to mention anything because people can really latch on to it. But in other locations... Certainly people have made adjustments to the wastewater treatment plant process. Stream restoration measures have been taken. There's some evidence that you can enhance biological processing with stream restoration measures, so that would be a good thing to check into. 
Green infrastructure can enhance more infiltration so that you get more groundwater discharge occurring. So if we can show that that would be an important thing. Some people think that a lot of nutrient processing can go on in the green infrastructure. I'm a little bit more skeptical of that. I don't disagree that that can happen, but I think it's harder to achieve a measurable result with that. So I I tend to think of the green infrastructure as a way of enhancing um, groundwater infiltration, which is a good natural process to encourage. But the other idea would be you're preventing stuff from coming in through overland flow. I think treatment trains work better and attacking problems from multiple angles works better. There is not going to be a silver bullet where if you just fix this one thing, all of a sudden that stream's going to get healthy. That's just not realistic. It hasn't been true elsewhere, and I don't see why it would be true for a stream that has been impaired as long as the Wissahickon has been. So I, I think we have to find multiple approaches and not just blame one thing for the stream's poor health. We need to look at a bigger picture. What will it look like eventually when your work begins to interface with the policy and the decisions being made by municipal governments? Where do those, where do those processes connect? I think there's a couple things. One, most successful TMDLs have a good data set behind them. And when you have a good data set, then you can explain things to people. Like right now, there's some things I can't explain to you. We don't want to be in that situation. We want to have more knowledge. And as you have that and you can explain things to people, it helps them with their decision-making. They can say, oh, so if I try this, that might work. The other piece of it is that we're working with the Environmental Finance Center so that the ideas that we come up with are cost-effective. Um, it doesn't really help if you come up with an idea but nobody can afford it, especially because I don't think, again, I don't think there's a silver bullet. I might suggest something that ends up not working, so we want to make sure we haven't spent too much money on it. I think everybody realizes that whatever we do, these are long-term plans. You you can't. We cannot clean up the stream. There is no such thing as putting Humpty Dumpty back together. We can prevent further damage, and we can make it, hopefully make it healthier. But it, these things just do not happen overnight. And so you have to do some things that make sense, are affordable, and will head you in a direction and not expect a silver bullet. What's interesting to you about this, this area professionally? There's a lot of problems, but there's also a lot of capacity for solving them in that people are aware of the problems. There's so many healthy watershed associations in this area, and so you've got people who really care and want to affect change. Not every place is like that, and I think when you live in a place that's like that, you you aren't aware of how rare it is to have so much activism in an area. That's very exciting to have people that care about what you're doing and who want to know what you're doing and to live nearby places that you're trying to help improve. What do people living within the watershed, living in in Philadelphia, and are dependent on the watershed, what do they need to know that maybe they don't? Well, we're the cause of the problem. We have to be the solution. (laughs) And we're not going to clean up the stream. We're just going to keep it from getting worse and maybe make it a little bit better. But the human impact, we we can't erase it. But we can live with the stream, and we can we can make it a little bit better. I think there's some things we can do to help the stream help itself, for instance. I'm getting just a little bit further afield of the topic, but I'm curious, mm-hmm. how uh, how is climate change affecting your field or going to affect your field? 
That's a really interesting question, and it's hotly debated because there's two things that humans do. We build environments, so we've got the impervious surface thing going on, and we have climate change, and they both cause damage to streams, and you cannot always untangle or figure out which one's causing the most trouble, and that's a fascinating area, um, one that I'd sort of be interested in exploring, but specifically, climate change is expected to change storm events. So it depends on where you are, but in our part of the country, we expect more storm events. Well, given that that's part of the problem with the impervious surfaces, it's going to exacerbate the problem. So we're very worried about it. But which one's the worst, we can't tell yet. And, and, you know, we're running an experiment (laughs) that we probably should not be running. It's, it's not a good thing. Now, there's parts of the world where it's the opposite. You're going to have fewer storms, and that creates... So climate change and hydrology are inextricably linked, and we're very worried about it. But we, we really can't answer which is worse, the built environment or the climate. But that's something we, we're going to have to think about when we're looking at this TMDL, because if we're preparing for our present conditions and we get more storms, the solution that we come up with has to account for that. So it's very much on my mind. So you have to be able to kind of forecast out. You do. You do. And that's why climate change research is important. We can't wait for it to happen and see what the effect is. We have to anticipate. We cannot ignore this as an issue. Turan is a professor in the Department of Earth and Environmental Science at Temple University in Philadelphia. She's the lead researcher on a study that will shape the TMDL alternative being developed by the Wissahickon Clean Water Partnership, the subject of a series we've been looking at and will continue with on Pennsylvania Legacies. The next installment will meet a few of the many stakeholders involved in that initiative at the local government level and elsewhere, and we'll learn about how different communities in the watershed may be affected by the process going forward. You'll find part one in the series, The Real Wissahickon, in the audio room of the PEC website. Again, it's at peckpa.org, navigable from the front page of the website, or you can go to peckpa.org slash audio. All of our podcast episodes are there. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, find us on SoundCloud and Stitcher, as well as Google Play. You can send your feedback on the show to legacies at pecpa.org. That's legacies at peckpa.org back in two weeks with another new episode. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening.